If you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is this very famous story in the life of Jesus. Uh, We'll read from verses 1 to 15. Uh, It's the feeding of the 5,000. You've probably heard reference to it. If you've never read the story, you're somehow uh, aware of, of what's happening there. Uh, in fact, it's one of the few stories that's told in all four Gospels. Uh, John tells many news stories, but this one's so centrally important, and we'll figure it out here uh, as to why, uh, in just a moment, why this, this particular narrative is so central uh, to what, who Jesus is and what he intends, intended to do by coming to earth. Um, so the feeding of the 5,000, let's read it together. <clears throat> Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside. He sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have just a bite. And another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, filled twelve baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. But Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So here we have a situation uh, where there is a dilemma over a meal. Have you ever had a dilemma over a meal? Uh, Perhaps you've uh, had uh, taking your family out to eat and you have different ideas of where you intend to go and you have to resolve it, right? Well, this obviously is a much bigger deal. I remember uh, recently, <clears throat> Rach and I and the boys went to the Franklin Institute, and it was our first time going there with the boys, and we're, we're really excited about it. And we even planned ahead, which I'm not great at. So in order to save money, we packed a lunch. And rather than carrying the lunch around with us all day, I put it, left it in the car, and we went in, and when it was lunchtime, I, the, Rach and the boys went to sit down, and I went to the car to retrieve the lunch. And so I pressed the button on my key fob to pop the back trunk up. I set down my keys in the back of the car. I picked up my lunch and I shut the trunk. And so uh, the moral of the story is that after discussions with several people and because though there was a AAA sign up that we fully intended to use but had not sent in yet, uh, 200 and some dollars later, lunch was very expensive that day. Well, here is another story about an incident. Well, keys are not locked in the car. 
the question that Jesus poses is centered around what are we going to do for lunch, right? What are we going to do for dinner? And Jesus asked this question, as he's been fond of doing through the study in the Gospel of John, hey, where can we buy some bread? Uh, if you're like me and you're traveling down the road, your eyes are always looking for places that you can stop and get a snack or something to eat uh, so that when someone else suggests it, you can say, oh, that's a great idea, and pull right in, right? And so Jesus is asking this question, but John gives us insight this time, uh, not so much other times, but he gives us insight this time, and he gives us that little parenthetical statement. He did this to test them because he already knew what he intended to do, as if the other ones weren't tests, right, John? They're all tests. Jesus always knows what he intends to do. Uh, But here we have it again. A couple of interesting contexts to this story. Uh, One, uh, we talk about it often as the feeding of the 5,000. Scholars really believe that it was more like 10 to 15,000 because if you read it closely, it says 5,000 men. So there's no mention of women or children. So what you have here is if you've ever gone to a professional basketball game or hockey game, uh, it's like having an arena full of people. Uh, hungry with nothing to eat and this boy shows up with five loaves and two fishes and you feed everyone with enough leftover this is the context uh, of what is happening here uh, in this story so i want to suggest to you that jesus has three things in mind when he asks this question john already tells us that he knows what he has in mind i want to suggest to you he has three things and probably he has more but these three things seem rather obvious to me Uh, and the first thing he has in mind in testing them is to remind them that when they search for food, things always end up bad, (laughs) right? And this is the story, uh, and we find it here again, because immediately when Jesus asked this, what does Philip do? He goes into find food mode, and he says, well, wait a minute, Uh, and he's the numbers guy. Now, Rachel and I will always do this. It gets to the end of the month, and our monthly budget is tight, and we get frustrated because it seems like there's not enough money to do something. Uh, This is Philip, right? He's calculating the budget, and he's like, wait a minute feed all of these people. We're talking about half a year's wages. We can't do that. Besides Judas, we already know, is stealing from the treasury, so it's probably lower (laughs) than they even expected. Uh, And so then uh, Andrew comes up, who seems even a little bit better, right? Because he's like, well, here's this boy, and he's got five loaves and two fish. And so maybe there's some faith there, but he says right after it, but this isn't going to do anything for anybody, right? So they're immediately, and Jesus knows this will be the case, they're immediately in search for your own food mode. Uh, But the context, the history of the people of God is that when you are in search for your own food mode, things always end up bad, don't they? So Abraham is in the land, and there's famine. And instead of turning to God for provision, he goes and searches for food. Where? In Egypt. And God finally brings him back. And his son Isaac, there's famine in the land. And instead of turning to God for provision, he goes to Egypt. (laughs) And then finally they come back. And then Jacob, remember he has all these sons and Joseph is sold into slavery. Remember then there's famine in the land again. And so what does Jacob do? He sends his sons to Egypt. And God finally says, enough of this. If you want Egypt so bad, let's make you slaves for 400 years. And so they make bricks for the next 400 years in Egypt because they're in pursuit of their own food, right? I mean, this is the moral of this story. Uh, Even if you turn to a more obscure uh, story, uh, the book of Ruth. Uh, We hear the story of Ruth and we think of the 
uh, this, the faith of this Moabitess woman, Ruth, and how she enters into the genealogy that ultimately leads to David and to Jesus. But the story starts off with a family who's searching for their own food, doesn't it? So you have Elimelech and his sons, and the first thing we read about is that there's famine in the land. Now we should know by this point, and, and, and the covenant that God has already made with Moses says that uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, listen, if the land isn't bearing food, then something's wrong with how you're living. So turn back to God, and he'll make the waters rain. So there's famine in the land, and what does Elimelech and his sons think? Well, let's go find our own food. No, not, not let's turn back to God and repent of our sins and let him bless the land. Let's go find our own food. So they go to Moab. And it doesn't take for, for too many more verses to find out that Elimelech dies, and all his sons die in a foreign land. And finally, Naomi, Elimelech's wife, hears that God has brought food back to the land, and so she returns. But she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. The Old Testament and the people of God is full of stories that when we search for our own food, we end up in the wrong places. Because we are not good navigators. (laughs) Jesus wouldn't have had to come if we were good navigators of this life, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all his sons, Elimelech and his sons, Philip, Andrew, all the disciples, and I think us, when, Jesus, when that voice comes in our head, we're, how are you going to take care of this situation? What are you going to do about this? We start plotting our course, don't we? Well, here's what I know I have. Here's where I know I can get to this. And, and I put this... Th- and listen, I'm not suggesting to you you shouldn't be thoughtful and thorough and have a plan for your life and make a budget. But if your whole existence is centered around how you're going to accomplish what you intend to accomplish, you are no different than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his sons, Elimelech, and his sons, your search for your provision will lead you to foreign lands and ultimately leads to your demise. What we find out is that when God's people turn to him for provision, the path always leads to God's land of blessing. So you have this interesting paradox in Scripture that when man searches for his own bread, he lands in foreign lands. When man depends on the providence of God, he lands in the promised land. And Jesus wants to remind them by asking this question, where can we get bread? That you aren't going to find it. (laughs) Right? And he knows they'll rack their brains and try to figure it out. And we've just read a story in John chapter 4 where the disciples, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, are off doing what? Buying food. Right? So that's kind of what they do. The first reason for this question is he wants to remind us that when we search for our own provision, it ends in bad places. The second thing, and this is the broad storyline, and I hope you can, you can grasp the richness of this, because this is missed all of the time in this story. In this story, we talk so much about this great miracle, and Jesus, he takes this bread, and it just keeps ripping off pieces, and it just keeps going and going and going, and all these people eat, and isn't it wonderful? And that's great. And it's wonderful. And the other Gospels talk about the compassion that Jesus has on the people because they're hungry. And that needs to be read into it too. Don't mishear me. But the the narrative, the scope of the story is exactly why it's important to all the Gospel writers. Because what we find is that the second thing Jesus wants to accomplish by asking this question is he's instituting a new exodus. He's instituting a new exodus. Uh, 
later on today, tomorrow, uh, instead of watching the Super Bowl. I don't know, whatever it is you want to do. Read Exodus chapter 16. For some of you, you're not into sports and you're like, good, I finally have something else I can, can do. Read Exodus 16. Exodus 16 is the discussion of Jesus providing man or Jesus, God providing manna to the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, listen. Listen to the similarities in the story. Let me read John for you again. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. Did the Israelites cross the sea? They crossed the Red Sea, do they not? And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw signs. Had Moses performed signs to the Israelites and to the Egyptians? Is that not why Pharaoh finally released them? And the multitudes follow Moses across the sea because he's performed signs and therefore is from God. Uh, Then Jesus went up on a mountain. Does Moses go up on a mountain after he crosses the sea and performs signs? Yes. Ah, da, da, da. One on Mount sat down with the disciples. The Jewish Passover festival, festival was at hand. Well, Passover is what was totally at hand in the, the Exodus narrative. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming from him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread? Right. So they cross the sea. They're followed by multitudes who have seen them perform miraculous signs. They go up on a mountain, and then they provide miraculous bread. What we are to understand in the narrative scope of things is that Jesus is the new Moses. And that's why at the end of the whole, the whole story here, they say, this is the greater prophet. Because in Deuteronomy, it had been prophesied that a greater prophet than Moses is coming. This is what they're understanding. This is the narratival scope of this thing. Jesus is reenacting the exodus of the people. And so, so much so that the very next story, which we won't cover together on Sunday mornings, but hopefully you'll read, is what? Jesus walks on water, right back across. And so what happens after the miraculous provision of bread? How do the Israelites get into the promised land? The Jordan River is parted and they walk through. This is the narrative scope of John chapter 6. This is why it's so radically important. The exodus that once was a very physical thing is now appearing in greater scope, in spiritual scope. Because what Jesus intends to do is not simply liberate us from being brick makers, but liberate us from the bondage of our sinfulness. Right? The exodus is fully at hand in the work of Jesus. This is what he's come to do. But just like they say, the greater prophet has come. What we find in this story is that this story is a one-up <laughs> of the other stories. Uh, so much so that uh, a couple things of note here. Now, John mentions that they, uh, the boy has barley loaves. John's the only one that mentions this, this notion of barley. And we'll talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. But we know that Elisha multiplied barley loaves and kings to feed 100 people. And Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. And before Elisha, Elijah had multiplied bread to feed about 10. And Moses, of course, had not multiplied anything, but had seen God provide manna from heaven. So here in Jesus is the greater prophet, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than Elisha. Two things are of note. If you read Exodus chapter 16 later on, you'll see these. Uh, The first reason that this exodus is greater than the first exodus in the Old Testament is that the bread maker is present. 
No longer are they simply seeing things rain from heaven. They're not waiting for the dew to pass so they can go gather up this food that's on the ground. The one who makes the bread is no longer in heaven raining it down. He's present and ripping it and handing it himself. Imagine this. And it's so important. And we wonder in these stories, well, wait a minute. Why did Jesus have to cross the lake just to do this? Well, because he's mimicking the Exodus story. But also, where does the manna get provided to the Israelites? In the wilderness, right? Outside the land. Dependent upon it. Do you walk in the wilderness ever? I walk in the wilderness. Sometimes for ten minutes. Sometimes for a day. Sometimes for a month. Sometimes for longer. How radical to know that the one we serve is present in the wilderness, handing to us the daily bread for our sustenance. This exodus is greater than the first exodus. The second thing is, there's leftovers. <laughs> right? Now, I seriously once heard someone preach a sermon that based on this said, this is the biblical proof that you must save leftovers. I literally heard this. Now, I, it has blown my mind ever since I heard that, and not only because I think it's odd, but second, because I don't really like leftovers. So I don't want any biblical proof that we need leftovers. I'd rather dispose of them. And Rach knows this. She's always trying to, uh, to serve leftovers. And I, I've, get, I've gotten better at them, but honestly, I don't know. It's like it has to be cooked fresh and ready the first time. I, but here we have leftovers. <laughs> Two things I think are in view here. If you read Exodus 16 later on, you'll find out that God had instructed the people through Moses, go collect your manna, but only collect an omerful for you, for this day, not for anything more. Now, some of the people, because they were um, industrious, perhaps, let's put it in a, in a good way, they got more. Let's store up on this stuff. How do we know if God's going to show up tomorrow or not? Right? And, and God had said to Moses, this is a test for them to see if they really trust me that I'm going to keep doing this every day. And so what happened was the people that got more, uh, the next morning when they went to, to use it, there was worms in it and it had fully rotted. So the first exodus produces manna that's good for a day. Jesus has leftovers. Do you see this? It's greater. But not just leftovers. Twelve baskets full of leftovers. Once again, John is not just saying, wow, look at that. Eleven plus one. Twelve baskets. Why is twelve so important? It's the twelve sons of Jacob. That's the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus, when he calls disciples, calls 12 disciples because 12 represents the people of God. And so what this, this miracle is really symbolizing is not simply, oh good, there's 12 baskets of leftovers. If someone's hungry later, you can come get a snack. The idea is that this is enough for the fullness of the people of God. See, you were in view when this happened. Do you catch that? There's enough for you and for me. There's enough for the Israelites. There's enough for anyone who would come to the bread maker to receive it. There are no worms in these leftovers. 2,000 years later, it's not rotten. We taste it. And it's good. There are leftovers. The second thing I think is in view here, if you read Exodus 16 later on, you'll find out that there was one day a week where they were permitted to get extra. right? But just enough for one more day. And that was the day before Sabbath. Because on Sabbath, you weren't supposed to do anything. You were to rest. Now, let me suggest to you, um, most people look at Sabbath 
as legalistic, right? And we've grown up sort of in that way. And even the way that the, the Jewish people began to look at the rules of the Old Testament, they began to look at them not so much as a ways that God has graciously given them to live in communion with him, but in legalistic sort of ways. And so they put all of these laws on top of them. Sabbath was never meant to be that. Certainly it was meant to rest, and you weren't supposed to break that. And if you broke God's laws, there were consequences. But what were they just doing? Who were they in Egypt? They were slaves. And God finally says to them, you're not going to work one day a week. You're going to honor me because you're not working. But I'm also going to show you that you matter to me because of who you are not because of what you can produce. This is grace. This is graciousness. And so God says, I'm going to provide for you on this day. This is a day of rest for you. And it's a day to honor me. We miss the part of rest for you, don't we? We just think the part of, oh, I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't do the laws, they box me in. This is rest for you. And so the people, what they fully understood was that a return to the land was the full Sabbath. Right? And so they talked about the land as a place of rest. And so ultimately, when we talk about Jesus, when he says things like, come find your rest in me, the fullness of Sabbath is in me. You are not defined by what you produce. You are not defined by what you do. You are not defined by your talents or your abilities. You are defined by the way that you bear the image of me. I created you. I love you. Rest. End of story. And rest means I will provide. I'll take care of it. The leftovers, I think, symbolize the rest that Jesus has to give. They've got it. Not only today do you not have to go find your own bread, but tomorrow. And the next day, Jesus taught the disciples to pray, what? Jesus, help me to find my daily bread? Oh, give me my daily bread. And manna is totally in view in that context as well. The exodus is greater. You thank God that through Jesus, sin is conquered. That we no longer bear the chains, the weight, the punishment of our misgoings, of our journeys into the wilderness, of our errors in searching for our own provision, all taken care of through Jesus. The chains are released, and we are welcomed into the fullness of what Shabbat or Sabbath was intended to be, rest, life, sustenance, the land. This is what Jesus is offering. See, he wants the people to know through this question that he's instituting a new exodus for everyone who would come to Jesus. And the last thing is he wants to show, he wants to demonstrate his power of multiplication. He wants to demonstrate his power of multiplication. And so you have this young boy with five loaves of bread and two fish. We don't know if Andrew said to him, you're going to give us this, (laughs) right? Or if he gave it of his own accord, though, we're we're brought to assume through the way it's written and through the other accounts that it was of his own accord, that he wanted to give these things. He said, hey, I've got this. And so he gave, demonstrating multiplying power. Jesus takes this and uses it in unbelievable ways to feed 
thousands upon thousands of people. Two things here. Two things are at the root of this. One is that there's a willingness to give, right? He's willing to give. And much is made, and I've heard sermons preached, and I think this is right, but I think it sort of is, it misses the point just a little bit, that he gave everything. He did. He didn't, he didn't say, well, I'm keeping one loaf and one fish for me, and you make do with the rest. Right? We do that sometimes, don't we? Well, I've got this, and you, here, here's what's left over. He gave everything. True. He gave everything that he had there. We're not told that he went home and convinced his parents to sell their house or to give all of their crops or if they were or shepherds to give all of their sheep or if they were fishermen to sell their boat and their nets. In that moment, when presented with that need, he gave everything that he could give. It's different, isn't it? It's more empowering, I think. It's more doable. It's more possible. He gave everything that he had to give. See, but the reason that he was able to do it is because he was first a recipient. They're all following Jesus because they've seen him touch other people. And so we find this, this reoccurring truth through Scripture that if we do not understand grace, if we do not understand grace, we will never be givers. Some of us give out of obligation. Some of us give because we think that's what religious people are supposed to do. You will not give like Jesus intends you to give unless you've understood grace. And the reality of it is none of us have understood it in the fullness. We're all at varying journeys of experiencing it. And we've talked about this before, and I want to share it again. What do we notice that Jesus does when he takes this gift? He breaks it and he, he gives thanks. Eucharisteo is the Greek word. The Greek word for grace is charis. Eucharisteo is to give thanks. It is rooted in grace. Kara is the Greek word for joy. It is rooted in grace. There is a triangle that is totally in effect here with the top point of grace, thankfulness and joy. We search desperately for joy in our life. If you haven't received and understood grace, you will not have joy. But likewise, if you have not lived in a life of thankfulness, you too will not experience joy. You'll experience fleeting moments of joy because there are fleeting moments of grace and thankfulness. Right? But I'm talking about this life that's consumed with joy. Grace, thankfulness, joy. In the ancient world, they were one concept all tangled together. And so the boy receives grace and he gives. And the word gift is also the word charis, which means grace. Right? So the boy receives and he gives and Jesus then gives thanks. And all the people's bellies are full and they're full of joy. We are all so desperately in pursuit of joy. If we could only have a better picture of grace, that we serve a God who is a good God, a giver of good gifts every day. And if we would respond in thankfulness for the gifts we have, not grumbling for the things we don't have that we assume that we need, we would experience more and more joy. And I think we would be more and more prone, like this boy, to give. Because one, we've known that it wasn't ours to begin with. And two, we've known that we've been blessed by it, so why can't someone else? Grace, thankfulness, joy. Here it is again, one more time. And you might say, well, I don't have much. 
uh, and you would be joined by a chorus of millions. Right? Especially in our world, in this economy, in this situation, many of us are just scraping by. We're living paycheck to paycheck, and I'm not even talking necessarily about money. Maybe it's time. Well, in our world, our time is more and more consumed, and we feel like we don't have much to give, and our resources are pulled more and more ways, and we feel like we don't have more of us to spread out. We feel kind of caved in on and stretched out and so forth. And you feel like, well, what I could give, there's not much of it. Well, we turn to this boy again. Five loaves of bread. (laughs) And uh, something strange is happening with the speaker. So if I sound like a robot, I apologize. Uh, Five loaves of bread. Two fish. I think sometimes the picture we get from that uh, is this basket springing forth of these big Italian loaves of bread, right? Like the ones you buy at the supermarket when you're going to have pasta or lasagna or something really, really good. Uh, the, the reality is that they were about this big. Uh, they were cakes, first of all, and they were probably unleavened to a certain degree, you know, and uh, meatier and thicker. Uh, but John notes that they're made out of barley, uh, which is an interesting notation. What we find out is that barley was the cheapest of all the grains in that society. As a matter of fact, it was a third of the value of the bigger grains. And so even Jewish writers from around that time, uh, one of the Pliny, one of the guys who wrote, said that that barley was a food made for beasts. (laughs) They didn't like it. And so some have said that only the poorest of the poor people would eat barley loaves. What's that mean for this boy who's carrying them? Well, he's got fish. Um, if you note, John, uh, the translation probably says small fish, and that's a good translation. The Greek word for fish is ichthus. You've probably heard that before. Uh, that's not the word used here. The Greek word is apsaria, uh, and it really means relish. Uh, and so what they would do, we assume it's fish from the other stories, they'd have these tiny fish, almost like sardine size, and they'd, use, they'd be used to flavor the bread because the bread didn't taste so great. And so it was just a little relish spread to put on the bread. This is the offering that Jesus get. Not, he's not these salmon, right? It's not these sea bass. It's not these massive catches from deep sea fishing. It's not these huge loaves of bread. It's these five tiny cakes with some relish spread so they don't taste so bad. Jesus takes them and multiplies them. I want you to know that even if what you have to give is so minute, Jesus wants you to know when he asks this question that he multiplies what you give. We pray that every week before our offering and we talk about mission and the gospel going forward. Jesus multiplies. He does it. And so the question, the response can't be, but I can't. Because <laughs> even the boy, his gift was proportionate. But Jesus receives the gift of grace. And he multiplies it and uses it as much as is able. And so the question is right before us. Has the gospel affected you? Has Jesus affected you? Has that story of new exodus become your story? If so, if so, when Jesus asks this question, where can we buy bread? He's asking you, what will you give? What will you give? You do not need to feed 5,000 people what will you give so he can multiply it? Will you give money? We don't talk much about money in this church, and that's on purpose. 
Uh, we're not a church that says to you, we, you know, here's our budget, we need to meet it, we need lots of offering, you need to give more. That's between you and God. That's, that's nothing to do with me. But I want to suggest to you, do you give? Not even necessarily to the church. But is the money, that, is that yours? Or is it open? And even if you're in your budget, you have 50 cents to give. That's your meal for that day that you can give. We give. And do you believe that Jesus can multiply it? What about time? I know your lives, and you know my life. There's not much of it, <laughs> right? There's not much time to go around. Uh, you're traveling, you're working, you're commuting. <laughs> this is the worst part of time. You're, you've got family to visit. You've got Jesus isn't asking you to clear your schedule. But would you give? Many of you are giving. Giving your time. You're playing music. You're serving in children's church. You're counting money afterwards. You're investing in your neighbors. Jesus multiplies that kind of stuff. We're not talking about quitting your job and hanging around and saying, okay, Jesus, here I am. The Thessalonians started to do that, and Paul said to them, you're idiots. Get back to work, right? That's not what we're talking about here. No one's calling for these massive sacrifices. No one's saying, sell your house and give everything. Well, Jesus said it's the rich young ruler, not so much so that he would do it, but to show him that there was something in between him and God. And so this question does the same thing, doesn't it? What about your talents and your abilities? We know that people are using them. We know that you're using them in your vocation, but what might God be asking you to give? In a small way, so he can multiply it. What about your connections? What might Jesus be asking you to give? Can I make three pastoral urges to you? Three simple pastoral urges. I hope God urges you in a thousand more ways than this and maybe can cut right to your heart better than I could and then you won't blame me for doing it anyway, right? (laughs) Three simple pastoral urges for you. Can we be a church that is consumed with finding conversations at the well? I'm so drawn back to that story of Jesus at the well that we talked about a few weeks ago. When he meets this Samaritan woman and he speaks to her and he asks her that simple question, can I have a drink? And a conversation emerges from it. We talked about the missional point of it isn't so much that you've got to find a way to get the gospel in there. It's that would you just start a conversation and see if the Spirit intends for it to go somewhere? What if a way to give and to see if Jesus would multiply was to be committed to these Jacob's well kind of conversations? What if you counted the rhythm of your day by these conversations? with the grocery store clerk, when you say, hey, hey, how's your day going? And they go, eh. Well, maybe that's all God intended it to be, but you, you stepped out there. You made the effort. And Jesus, maybe that wasn't the where he was working, but another time you say to your hairdresser, hey, what's, how's things going for you? And over time, it breaks into this story of hurt and, and whatever, and you're able to share comfort with her, which comes from God, we know from 2 Corinthians. Jesus is multiplying the fact that you would ask a simple question. This is easy. This is not hard. Even for the most introverted, you don't have to walk up to the stranger in the mall and say, oh, by the way, 
pastor said, I need to start asking questions. So what's your favorite color? No, no, like the person that you know well or a person that you see often and a simple kind of question. If we believe that Jesus can multiply, all he's asking for is loaves and fish and not big loaves and big fish, barley loaves and little upsari of fish, relish. What if we were Jacob's well conversationalists? That's a great way to give. A great way to give. Easter is upon us soon. Uh, Easter uh, is the story of the resurrection. And so the, the women come to the well and they, uh, the well, yeah. women come to the empty tomb and they find it empty and they run back to get other people, right? And they run back to get other people. And so Easter for us is a time of, of not simply having this high moment in our calendar where we come together and dress in our nicest clothes and sing those special Easter songs. But it's a time when we say to the people around us, wait a minute, this tomb is empty, come and see. What if a way for you to give was simply, as we've seen all through the Gospel of John so far, is to go to your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers and say, come and see. Come and see. You don't have to give them a five-point apologetic argument for the reason for Jesus' existence. Hey, would you come check this out because it's meaning something to me? And perhaps the answer is not a chance, man. Well, that's okay. But if we believe that Jesus can multiply, then all we have to do is give the barley loaves and the little fish. You just have to to see, come and see. So as Easter is approaching, would you open your hearts to that? And and not just one or two, but what about ten? What if if all of us said that to 30 people? Suddenly the chance for God to multiply is that much bigger. The result, the, the... the way that God says to you, good job, isn't because they came. It's because you stepped into it and said, hey, I believe you'll multiply when you choose to do it. And so be it. And so a third thing is Alpha. Some of you are aware of what Alpha is. We run an Alpha course once a year, and it's an introduction to Christian faith. And it's a great opportunity for people who are newer to the faith or for people who are seeking or for even people who don't like Christianity, but they'll come if you come with them. It's a time for them to come, watch a short presentation, and have discussion with no judgment about their beliefs and their thoughts. What if giving was for you to find that person in your life and say, hey, I'll come to this with you, and then let them answer and see if Jesus would multiply. And then there's time and there's resources and there's money, and there's stuff, and all the other things of our life that I will let God speak to you about. But friends, we're not talking about everything. We're talking about all that God asks for in that moment. Five loaves, barley, and two small fish. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that in you, Sin is broken. Chains are unleashed and we are free. And you have led us on a journey to fullness through you. So open our eyes to your grace. Cause us to be thankful. Let us live in joy. Let us find the fullness of our rest in your providence in our life. Take our worship, we pray. Amen.